Spy Cops Info Podcast. Episode 5, more from the Undercover Policing Inquiry. This is Penny from the podcast. Um, today at the Undercover Policing Inquiry on May 4th, they're going to hear from four witnesses. There's three police officers and one person who was spied on called Mary. Um, the police officers are Peter Collins, HN301, sorry, HN303, Bob Stubbs, HN301, and Michael Scott, HN298. So we're just going to talk about Peter Collins and Bob Stubbs. Yeah, just to mention... Oh, sorry, and this is Chris as well from the podcast. And just to mention that um, neither Bob Stubbs or Peter Collins are given uh, live evidence. In Bob Stubbs' case, it simply he wasn't, though he, he submitted a, a detailed written statement, he wasn't called by the inquiry, which is a, a source of some contra- controversy of, if you know, for non-state participants, I think, because we feel that all undercover officers should be, should be called to give live evidence. Uh, in the case of Peter Collins, he is too ill to, to give evidence. And in fact, he was too Ill, Ill even to submit uh, a written statement. Bob Stubbs, HN301, he infiltrated the International Socialists um, initially between 1970 and 1975. Uh, he also monitored the Anti-Internment League, Northern Irish Civil Rights Association, and the Troops Out movement. Um, just to explain a little bit... Um, Anti-Internment League was a campaign against um, internment of Republicans in Northern Ireland in the early 1970s. And the Troops Out movement, as you might guess, was a uh, demand for the British Army to leave Northern Ireland. <clears throat> However, Stubbs was initially tasked to befriend a member of the Palestinian Solidarity Campaign. And this person, who we don't know the name of, worked at a hospital in London. And Stubbs actually got a job there as a technician working working in the hospital. And Stubbs also mentioned that he thought he was chosen for the SDS, for the Special Demonstration Squad, because he, he had a dark complexion and, and they were interested in ter- terrorist activity around Middle Eastern politics, specifically Palestine at the time. Now, just I, I, it probably doesn't need pointing out to many of our listeners, but the Palestine... Solidarity campaign doesn't have any links with terrorism. I just thought I should <laughs> ask that. Extra clear. <laughs> um, however, that didn't work out for whatever reason. The guy, he, the PSC member uh, who worked at this hospital, the Stubbs, also got a job that didn't, they didn't get on or he failed to befriend him in, in any case. Yeah, so um, after his failure to um, infiltrate the, the PSC, he moved on to the Hammersmith and Fulham branch of the International Socialists, um, and from from and he, and he hung around for quite a long time for you know for five years there, um, and therefore he he gained access to other campaigns as I said you know troops out movement and and the anti internment league. So a lot of the reporting is pretty um, I don't know um, routine I would say, but he, he does make some interesting comments about the way the SD. W- SDS work for instance he says he was given a, a free reign to direct his own tasking so he he chose what he was going to do in other words and he also says that 
um, the SDS gradually morphed, gradually morphed into a more of a general intelligence gathering unit. Yeah, one of the, um, the demos that Stubbs attended was the counter National Front demo in Red Line Square in 1974, where Kevin Gately was killed by police. Uh, Bob Bob Stubbs says he he was actually punched by a police officer on the demo, and he joins there there a growing list of undercover officers who were sorted by their uniform colleagues. That includes uh, Mark Kennedy and I think Peter Francis has at least spoken of witnessing vicious assaults on demonstrators by police. Okay, and what other kind of things was he reporting on? So, as I was saying, he reported on the Troops Out Movement and Anti-Internment League. Uh, so, for instance, he, he, when, it, when, it, when he was asked in, in his statement why he reported on, for instance, the troop, Troops Out Movement, he simply commented that it, of its, because of its supposed connection to Irish extremism. Um, and similarly with the uh, um, Anti-Internment League, he, he meant, in his, some of his reports, it's mentioned that there's delegates from Sinn Féin there, for instance, so... You can see the connection now. Um, one of the other things he commit he, he uh, reported on was a a, a theoretical a, a potential international socialist lawyers group, um, and he also reported on a a group of defendant solidarity group called the Belfast Ten, and that's something that we've seen in um, other undercovers closely monitoring legal help offered. By um, by people, by people. Is there any reason that they seem especially interested interested in those kinds of things? Um, I mean, I mean, they reported on pretty much everything, as we know. I think, but it's, it's especially controversial in the sense that, you know, they're talk we're talking about legal proceedings, which potentially containing information that um, is confidential to to those defendants or their supporters and or, or their lawyers, I guess. Yeah, one of the other issues about the special demonstration squad and the operations is how far up the chain of command it went, how how much detail was known. And on this, um, Stubbs recalls the Metropolitan Commissioner at the time, Sir Robert Mark, visiting the SDS flat. So, And that's in line again with what several other undercovers have reported in their witness statements. So um, if we move on to the other guy whose evidence was well, mentioned it wasn't even summarised in the proceedings today. Can you remind us what he's called? Oh, yeah, Peter Collins. So that was Peter Collins, HN303. That's right. And he, as we mentioned here, he was too ill to even provide a, a written st- statement, which is a bit of a shame because his um, deployment has uh, one very intriguing element to it, which is that though he was deployed within the Workers' Revolutionary Party, they then, if you like, deployed him, obviously presuming that he was a a genuine member, to infiltrate um, the National Front. So he became um, a double agent in in effect. So it's a bit of a shame we couldn't hear from him directly because it sounds, you know... um, of interest from that point of view. But it's also a bit ironic because um, at that point, up to that point, the Special Demonstration Squad hadn't deployed any officers into the extreme right-wing fascist groups at that point. So um, it seems a bit funny that um, the uh, infiltration was actually directed not by the police themselves, but by but by this um, Trotskyist party, the Revol- Revolutionary Workers' Party. Yeah, indeed, because I think like we know that the the sort of the threat from the right and things has been significant, but so often overlooked. 
So there are several reports if you want to look at them. So it's actually this we talk about the National Front. He this he um it was like a, a dissatisfied faction of the National Front, uh, the Legion of Saint George, they were called, and there doesn't seem to be much of a trace of of them. Originally, that name comes from the Waffen SS Legion from the Second World War, which was the section of the SS which was made up of British volunteers who wanted to fight for Nazi Germany. Um, um, there is a, so anyway. Well, probably, why were they dissatisfied? Um, because the, the leadership of the National Front wasn't radical enough. I think that was that's what it says in the reports, anyway. Um, and I, I did speak to a couple of people uh, who are you know scholars in sort of that sort of kind of area, and they hadn't heard of this group. So it, it does seem very much a small localized group who just met in a pub in the east end of London, which somehow Collins got 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 involved with via the WRP. How the WRP got involved or knew about them is also a bit of a mystery um it's interesting though that obviously the lack of special branch interest in the national front at that point because it seems that it was the infiltrations of those groups came from the left there is also there was also a guy who was ran by uh, anti-fascist magazine searchlight um who who also infiltrated uh, right-wing groups Maybe a little bit later into the late seventies, early eighties. So it was very much a case of like the state's not doing it; we have to do it ourselves, kind of thing. Yeah, that sounds um, like a, a yeah, common theme, doesn't it? Unfortunately. So yeah, um, there's quite there's, there's a quite a number of reports, lots of reports, in fact, on the Workers' Revolutionary Party. One of the points of interest on on those is that some of the information was specifically solicited by MI5 um, and and there was one sort of you know, relatively famous incident where the um, so yeah for people not familiar the Workers Revolutionary Party the probably the most well-known thing about them is that they featured well-known actor actors Vanessa Redgrave and her brother Corin um, and they for that reason they had a bit of cash donated to them from the family and they bought several premises all over the UK actually but there was there was one place called the White House which was renamed predictably the Red House in Derbyshire which was raided by police in 1975 or 1976 um, and um, the security measures that happened after that raid is re- reported in extreme detail um, we think intelligence in the 30-page report. So to link to the the other witness speaking today, uh, Michael Scott, um, he also had some involvement with the Workers' Revolutionary Party, but we're, we're speaking about him um, next probably, I guess. Yeah, so hopefully there'll be a bit more information coming out this afternoon. Hi, and welcome back to the Spy Cops Info podcast bonus episode. Great. And so we're going to talk to you about Mike Scott, who was HN298, who gave testimony, and also Mary, who was unfortunately um, uh, infiltrated by an undercover officer and had a relationship with one. So, Chris, can you tell us a bit about Mike Scott? Yeah, so Mike Scott, he was deployed between 1971 and 1976. Um, uh, Mike Scott's obviously a cover name. He was infiltrated... He infiltrated rather the Young Liberals, anti-apartheid movement, specifically the Stop the Seventy Tour, and also the Workers' Revolutionary Party, and, and actually, yeah, and a couple of other groups as well, which I might mention later. 
people who heard and listened to his evidence, I only managed to catch some of it, were struck by how bullish he was in defending um, the special demonstration squad and their tactics. But um, when it actually came down to the details, nothing that he actually said seemed to um, give a uh, good reason to believe that the SDS's deployments were justified. Um, yeah. Um, In what way do you mean? The, the groups that he infiltrated um, didn't really do anything which you would think would, would justify those kind of undercover deployments. Um, his predominant target um, within anti-apartheid movement was Peter Hain, um, and also uh, who very much stuck <laughs> was on the on the inverted quotes on the right side of the law. He he you know his most gratuitous crime I think he said was having a sit down on the zebra crossing when he gave evidence on um, on Friday um, at the end of at the end of April within the inquiry and then he also he was involved in um more more direct direct the more direct action orientated stop the 70 tour which again peter hayne was a, a driving force behind that but but um scott specifically was involved with an incident we already heard about from both jonathan rosenhead and christopher christabel gurney and also ollie rodker when he was reading his dad's statement out ernest's um re regarding um a non-violent direct action at the Star and Garter Hotel in 1971. And that's now being investigated as a possible miscarriage of justice, is that right? That's right, because Scott was arrested on that action um, in his, his cover name. And also, um, perhaps even more seriously, he was in, he was um, party to um, confidential legal conversations between the, defend, the genuine defendants and their lawyers. No, I don't know. I've watched enough like crime dramas on TV that I feel like I know that's a wrong thing to do. I feel like should police officers not have known that's a bad thing to do as well? I mean, seriously. Yeah, I mean, yeah. The concept of legal, legal privileged information is not a new one. It's you know very old in England, England, England and Welsh common law. I think it's also in, on statute now as well. But yeah, for for sure, it was certainly something that. <sighs> If not lower ranks should know about it, certainly it should have been um, rang alarm bells with its, with senior officers once they knew about it. One of the other incidents which was flagged up um, and had quite a long discussion was his assault of um, an activist. Oh, that sounds like another problematic thing, really. The, as we were saying, he was quite bullish and, and um, not defensive of the wrong word. He was more aggressive than that. He was very much proud of what he'd done. Um, within the SDS without <laughs> necessarily point to any actual evidence that um, there was anything actually to be proud of. So for instance, he was he was accused of being an undercover by an activist within the Anti-Internment League, um, Joey Lawless. Um, and in response to that, he, whilst driving, driving in his car, Scott spotted Lawless in a phone box and got out of the car and then, and subsequently punched him in the face. You might think he might have been a bit defensive about this, but Scott's take on it was more or less that Lawless, as far as he was concerned, was not a very nice man. Um, he was a nasty bit of work, I think maybe he is the phrase he used, and therefore assaulting him was absolutely fine. Now, I guess some people might find this shocking, but, you know, to be honest, 
that it kind of reflects a culture, a police culture, is that some people, if, if they you know step out of line, or you know you know or are criminals or known to, known to be a bit dodgy in some ways, makes them makes them okay to mistreat, um, to to visit extra judicial punishment upon them, and that's certainly you know from growing up on a on a council estate in the nineteen seventies and nineteen eighties, that's also my you know, my my experience as well. Um, so I guess you know <laughs> it did seem shocking within the context of the public inquiry, but I think most people who experienced uh, policing, you know, if you like, being on the wrong end of policing, would would you know see that as pretty pretty normal. Yeah, I think that seems to be something that that does people it does come through as being something that's like quite standardly reflected. Unfortunately, it is shocking though because it should be shocking, but it's also not surprising, I guess, in what it is. Yeah, so going back to Peter Hayne just briefly. Um, so it was it was Scott's. Uh, for people who might recall that um, Peter Hayne talked. There was reports which were from um, Peter Hayne's flat and P- Peter Hayne's mother's home as well, which included reports on uh, Peter Hayne's then younger teenage daughters who were under eighteen, and it was. Those were reports based on Scott's in, intelligence. I, again, he he seems absolutely fine re, with reporting on minors, um, people under the age of uh, eighteen. And I didn't have any problem with it. And and in fact, he commented that um, women. You know, he probably didn't say women. He probably said young girls of that age have have known to take up prominent positions in, especially environmental groups. Um, and there was there was obviously it was a long testimony and lots of questions there was lots of details which i'm not going to go into now but i feel that i should mention a couple of the smaller perhaps more minor groups that that he spied upon um which had a they were commitment and croydon libertarians and they seem to have some actual relationship with the the young liberals um, um and they were spied upon now they the reason why I mentioned them is because I spoke to, I think, both of the surviving members um, a while back before we, we knew it was Michael Scott who was the undercover. And they they were aware um, that, that there might there was a a guy who maybe looked at, seemed a bit odd at the time, but um, a lot the reports and also the discussion of the groups were a bit disparaging um, in the sense that uh, they were quite a small group and they were a bit disorganised and. I, Having spoken to the two the two surviving members, they did kind of agree with that assessment. But I would like to say that this is like 1971, and they were organising anti-car uh, actions and also a demonstration against um, the mining giant Rio Tinto Z. Both of which campaigns uh, have have latterly, you know, been picked up by many other campaigners. So you could see you can say from that um, that. They were, you know, ahead of the game in that sense. Even if perhaps they didn't have the the resources to to um, carry on the campaigns successfully. I mean, if they were capitalists, you'd call them visionaries of the future, right? So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just saying. So, Mary, one of the women who was deceived into relationship by um, SDS officer Richard Clark, cover name Rick Gibson, um, HN two nine seven. She gave evidence also on uh, May the 4th. 
So Mary attended Goldsmiths College in London from 1972 to 1975. Mary's obviously not her real name. And there she joined the Socialist Society that campaigned um, with a bunch of different sort of activities at the time, like we've been hearing about anti-apartheid. Um, they um, adopted a mine in Wales to support the miners' strike. Uh, and the Socialist Society organized speakers and groups and things. Mary also in her testimony made sort of a lot of really good sort of timely statements about sort of um, their campaigning against the National Front. She said that specifically the state was standing by the fascist organization. The police by their nature were institutionally racist and as a result the National Front organized at will. So I think that sort of speaks volumes to the focus of undercover policing at the time and even say the uh, you know it, it, it sort of echoes into the future now, I think. Um, during her te- during her testimony at the police, undercover policing inquiry, um, there was a period where she was asked a lot about the International Marxist Group and the National Abortion Campaign. And she went on to say, I feel uncomfortable continuing to answer questions about the um, International Marxist Group and my involvement in it. The questions appear loaded. My activities were for social justice and defense of human rights, which the last time I checked are allowed in a democratic society. Seriously, I thought this public public inquiry was meant to be investigating undercover policing. And I think that just speaks volumes really to what's been going on in the inquiry recently, that people who are testifying about such personal issues of personal nature really feel that they have to defend themselves in such a way when they're testimony, when they're testifying. Um, It's just inconsiderate. Well, it's more than inconsiderate. It's really unkind. She also went on to speak about her time as an activist and things, which is a feel, some of these feelings are feelings that others of us might have experienced as well. Um, and she said, um, she, she said, at no point was I ever involved in conspiracies or discussion that involved myself in illegal activities or violent activities. In fact, there were a number of occasions when I felt unprotected by the police who I should have been protected by. Our meeting at the East Ham Tal. Um, town hall was smashed up fascists coming into the building the police were outside stood back and let it happen um yeah so i just think that speaks volumes to what what people were experiencing at the time and then compounded by these the what we what the revelations are with undercover policing i think it speaks volumes again um so Mary talked a bit about her relationship with Rick Gibson, um, who built his career um, infiltrating activist groups and using relationships with different women to win trust and also build the cover story. So she said about Rick Gibson, he was a frequent visitor to both myself and my flatmate, who was also an activist. Um, and I assume that our sexual encounter uh, encounters were a manifestation of a mutual attraction, but they proved to be half-hearted and fizzled out. She also said that Rick Gibson is known to have had multiple sexual relationships with women that quickly fizzled out. Um, yeah, so she said she also went on to say, I find the whole strategy and practice of spy cops having sexual relationships with activists as immoral, unprincipled, and a criminal abuse of emotions. It is also an abuse of their own partners and family. So, um... Rick Gibson was exposed by members of Big Flame who did not trust him and uh, in their investigation they found his birth certificates and and death certificates for the real Rick Gibson um, who the spy cops had stolen, whose identity the spy cops had stolen. Mary was astounded when she found this out. Um, Yeah, she was really... And um, so she went on to say... He was always strangely unobtainable. He would not exchange contact details and he always had a reason that he could not be contacted. He said he worked for the water board and was often away. He had no political back history, no other back history. He seemed to be extremely politically naive and and utterly, utterly new to the idea of activism. And she said, 
she went on to say that I am disgusted that the police felt it appropriate to spy on people campaigning for better conditions for working class people, for democracy, civil liberties and human rights. I'm not traumatized. I just feel embarrassed and foolish having been used um, and conned. It really angers me that me as the police had no right to do this. Um, she said, the only solace, solace I can take is that everybody else was fooled by Rick Gibson, um, as well as the big flame found out who he, and big flame found out who he really was. So yeah, so I think she gave some really powerful testimony, don't you, Chris? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so well done her. So hi, I'm Tom Fowler and I'm joined with... Hi, I'm Lisa. Well, I'm, I'm a co-participant in the public inquiry and I'm known as Lisa. That's my pseudonym as part of this yeah. process. Um, yeah, I tweet under the name Lisa Lan. So, um, and it's there, it's at Lisa, just Lisa 2010 if you want to find me. But it's usually under the hashtag SpyCops or SpyCops Inquiry. Yeah. So um, we've just, I've just been day 11 of the inquiry. Um, and it was Lisa's first time uh, live in this during this phase. And we had Cecilia Stubbs today. What were your impressions? Yeah, I mean, it was a really, really powerful evidence, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to come and, and hear it um, come down to London, even though it's, it's quite odd because you're coming down, you know, if it wasn't for COVID, we would be coming down to sit in the court and to, you know, hear it face to face. And actually, it's coming down to a viewing room where you know I can I, I can I can listen to the evidence being given but there's just something that I wanted to to experience about the whole kind of viewing room experience if you mm. like you know I watched I tried to follow the first lot of inquiries the opening statements and everything back in November you know trying to watch it from home while you're going about your life and trying mm. to trying to get on with things and thinking about other things it, it's really hard mm. to uh you know, it'll either completely take you over and you just kind of lose track of everything you're supposed to be doing or you're kind of, you know, trying to multitask or I kind of, you know, find something difficult and, you know, get up and go for a walk instead. And I, I was finding following it to be quite bitty from home and quite quite difficult. Mm. So I thought I'd come down and just, you know, really immerse and just see see what it's like to be surrounded by the lawyers and and, you know, and being able to see how people are responding to this evidence as well as what's just what's being said you know you can see people's faces and the documents that, that are being talked about at the same time which is yeah which, which is different from watching it from home mm. um yeah and i'm i've waited so long for this inquiry and we're going to wait so much longer for it to become relevant to the things that happen to us mm. but you know so in some ways i'm trying to think about um you know stamina and longevity and not just you know I can't do what you've done Tom and just completely you know completely engage with every moment of it and I you know I, I think that's an amazing thing to be doing and somebody you know some people have to do that and I'm so glad that somebody is but I know that for me that I have to I can't do that so I'm going to dip in and out but I really do recommend people come and get the whole you know it's not the whole experience it's the you know the experience under Covid and just just you know getting to engage with it on some level is, mm. is better than no level in terms of access accessibility like it is they've made it incredibly difficult to follow closely as they a, have. 
you know, for everything from the the PDF files right through to the you know the, the, the displaying of of the uh, of the feed, which yeah, you know, as trying to follow the documents that they were referring to and trying to mm. find them on the inquiry website as they're being talked mm. about, you know, all of that stuff's really really difficult. And it's in sharp contrast to, you know, last week I came down to um, to be part of the IPT case, mm. which was relevant to um, the relationship I had with Mark Kennedy in the years, mm. you know, the operation that I, you know, the, mm. in which I was spied on. Mm. Um, so all of that was relevant to me. And just, if, if you want to, there's another podcast episode of ours. It might have come out before this, it might come out slightly after this, I'm not sure now, but um, Kate Wilson and the Investigative Powers Tribunal, it, that'll be a long-running series, I imagine. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's there's place you can get all the detail about that. But the, the point I wanted to make about that at the moment was just that the difference with the, mm. you know, that we always thought that that was going to be the most secret of secret courts. Mm. And, and, and that I'm sure that's probably what they would have done, maybe, mm. if we'd gone straight to the IPT. But by this point, the IPT have, I don't know, for whatever reason, figured that they have mm. a point to prove about, or they just, you know, have figured that actually this is some something mm. where they do need to have a degree of mm. public accountability and openness because of the nature of, of what happened. But they seem to be able to deliver accessibility to the hearing in a very different way. And, I, you know, it's, it, it's, it's really showed the inquiry up, I think. Mm. You know, I was able to watch that live streamed in real time mm. from home, you know, in a way that was much more followable than this. Yeah, Celia's, Celia's steps. Yeah, that was really moving. And it was it was her evidence that I really wanted to come, come down and hear. Because mm. even though I guess one of the, the value of the viewing room is to see to be able to see the faces of the people who you won't be able to see if you were just watching from home and that wasn't the case today but I'm still really glad I came down to sort of give it my full attention because what she was saying you know it was it was was really moving and and the case of Blair Peach or something um you know I think it's one of the first almost one of the first sort of famous cases of somebody being unlawfully killed by the Met Mm. that I was certainly Mm. aware of you know as part of of my kind of political mm. upbringing almost um and so to hear that she you know that they were spied that how closely they were spying on the campaign for justice for Blair Peach mm. you know simply because they were trying to um you know because they were trying to expose wrongdoing within mm. the Met and I, I think you know it like it's shocking but it's not mm. at all surprising because that does seem to be you know that does seem to always be the purpose of the Met in lots of ways you know protect the Met you know so they the police seem to be mostly concerned or the most intrusive spying often seems to happen in a case where they're trying to protect their own reputations and their own you know yeah their own officers and their own reputation 100% and that you know I mean that that follows through right through to this process where they've one of the things I thought was really telling was when um, she talked about the the fact that there had been uh, there was only one undercover officer who admitted to have been at the um, the demonstration where Blair Peach yeah. died. The, but the, but he, he is the one one of the officers who was only referred to in a gist because he is he's got so much uh, anonymity. We don't even have a HN number to refer to him by. Yeah, that confused me. I didn't. I wasn't following that bit. I had to um, be told that by people afterwards because, right. like, 
but I, I think that's the point, isn't it? You know, he's yeah. so anonymous, we can't even refer to him. So I've not heard him talked mm. about before because he hasn't got a number or a cipher or or a handy way of being talked about. So he's just, you know, he just goes and un- goes under the radar. I, I think it was it really it was really reminiscent though of the police's attitude in the investigatory powers tribunal last week, where it was constantly like, well, they've presented no evidence about this. You know, we can't say anything about this point because there's no evidence, there's no witness statements, there's no. And that seemed to be the case. That's what Celia was pointing out today, wasn't it? You know, we don't know what this particular officer... You know, we don't know anything about what they did because we've seen no evidence. And the fact that she's seen so little, you know, they've mm. shown that she hasn't... She knows there are files on her and she hasn't been shown them. You know, all of that just just seems cruel, doesn't it? You know, the way... It is cruel. You've got somebody in their, in their 80s who was spied upon because her partner was killed by the police and she was fighting for justice for that. You know, she's had all these years of grief and that grief intruded upon and raked up and raked mm. over. And then it gets to this point and they can't even show her her files. You know, it just is insulting, isn't it, really? Mm. It is. It's, it's absolutely disgusting. I think another thing is that the line of questioning... Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's chilling. And, and I, I find, as somebody who is likely to be interviewed in later stages of this inquiry hearing how witnesses have been treated in this tranche is you know it that's had a, quite an effect on me because I'm you know I'm imagining myself there and it's something that I always worried about right from the beginning of you know if I if I publish you know if I tell people what's happened to me you know I'll be the one who will be on trial you know it's almost like if they say well you know what sort of violence were you involved with you know, to have been spied on like this, you know, it's almost, it's the equivalent line of questioning, isn't it? It is. Asking a woman, you know, were you wearing a short skirt or what were you doing out at night? How, you know, what did you do to deserve it? Mm. And, you know, luckily I think up until this point I've been spared that in lots of ways. I was expecting a lot more of that, but it feels like the inquiry is finally where that is going to be delivered, you know. Mm. It's absolutely what the inquiry wants to know from each person is what did you do to deserve this treatment mm. it's not you know they're not examining what the you know what the police did as much as they're examining what we did and mm. that's that's you know that's not very nice thought really no um and it's yeah it's disappointing i didn't think that's the way this would necessarily shake down but um like i say i'm i'm not surprised but it is shocking yeah and i think that's yeah that's a good point that um that somebody that Kate made when you interviewed her earlier this week that mm. we shouldn't stop being shocked by this yeah. you know just because it's just because it's shocking um you know just because it's not surprising and we and we know this stuff happens mm. we shouldn't stop finding it shocking because if we're not shocked by it then it becomes normal yeah and we shouldn't be part of normalizing this kind of attitude 100% but yeah yeah and I, the other thing I was thinking about when, while Celia was giving evidence today was because um, I was reading, I wanted to read a bit of background about her case. So I read the book that actually was brought up by mm. the Council to the Inquiry, which was quite surprising. I, I'm surprised they referred to this book, but pleased that they did because mm. she attaches a co- some of it in her evidence. And it's a book called, um, I think it's called A View to a Kill by David Ransom, who, um, and it's an account of the inquest into the, um, into the unlawful killing of Blair Peach. It was, I mean, like, it was a murder. Like, yeah. and, and I yeah. really, you know, I mean... I mean, it, I said unlawful kill. They didn't yeah. even find that. No. They found it death by misadventure, they yeah. concluded. But like you say, it was murder. 
that these lawyers and the chair of this inquiry have referred to it in the, you know, had died res resulting to a blow to the head. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, you know that's as close as they'll get, you yeah, know, and it's like... Yeah, absolutely. He got beaten to death by the SPG, that's what happened. He did, yeah. And they, you know, when they, when they were, when those officers were searched, mm. their lockers were searched, weapons were found. Nazi yeah. paraphernalia. Yeah, in the house of one of them. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, but what was reading about the inquest and then coming to the inquiry, I was really struck by the, the similarity in the attitudes mm. and in a, a lot of respect. You know, the inquest was mm. really, you know, so much of it was interrogating the witnesses or, you know, the, the, the people who'd seen, mm. seen this happen. They'd seen Blair Pleach be beaten up and hit, hit across the head by the, by the police. They themselves were then questioned as if, you know, well, you were part of the crowd. You must have thrown stones at the police. You must have, you know, it was like each each witness becomes mm. the person on uh, somebody on trial, mm. and then coming to the the inquiry, and they were, you know, they were they treated Celia much nicer than previous witnesses, but it was still the same line of questioning, that same kind of, but what, you know, what were you doing? Mm. That you know, that that what, what did you do to deserve this treatment? And and that's you know it's quite horrifying when actually what she did was was um, have her have her partner killed by the police and then campaign for justice over that mm. you know that's what she was doing yeah and so it's it's even doubly shocking but mm. I, I think yeah that line of inquiry is is obviously the inquiry really are setting out that as their mm. that's their line they're going to do that yeah it, it would appear so and it. it... As, and as disgusting as the line of questioning I really thought was, just the very fact that they were like making her relive that day, yeah. and, yeah. Immediate, and like they were, there was no need for that. Yeah. There's just like, it, I don't see why it's why that's so, why they thought that was to, to do that's okay. It's like yeah. everything that she told us as powerful it was. Well, God was it powerful? Yeah. It, she's done this like she's been doing yeah. this for half her fucking life. I know. You know, um, it, we, you, you can you can find that information. You didn't need to to take yeah. her through that again. Why well, have you done this to in, her? It's all in her written statement. That's right. the thing. She didn't. They. She didn't need to say it. Yeah. But I guess you know maybe she wanted to. Maybe she wanted to, um, you know, explain and really try and get across what had actually happened to her. Maybe she was hoping that she could break through to Mitting somehow and, mm. and you know with the power of what what she had to say um, I, I think she was really good at putting of saying what needed to be said without uh, without being asked about yeah. a whole bunch of stuff but yeah but it was um, it was the particular questions that she was asked yeah. you know I mean specifically if I could just take you to that day you but, know yes, you know, I mean yeah, like that yeah. it, 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 it's emotive language that's being yeah. used you know and and also like recurring like she kept the, the questioner kept going back to we see here again, don't we? The strength of feeling. There's still strong feeling. There's still yeah, strong, and yeah. it, as if that's going somewhere. As if it's going to lead up. And we see now that the, the strong feeling erupts in violence. The police were required the whole time. You know that somehow yeah, yeah. the fact that these things didn't, there was no violence in the end. Was that well? If you hadn't been so bothered about it, perhaps you wouldn't have any got any spy cops in your life. Yeah, exactly. And somehow that there was because she was um, part of a campaign mm. that was that was. Um, you know, that was relying on that strength of feeling mm. or that to get justice. You know, yeah. that's what they were doing. They were they were raising awareness of mm. what had happened. They were you know, it was almost as if they were she was being accused of stoking a strength mm. of feeling. Yeah. You know, in order to in order to achieve what she wanted to achieve with her campaign rather than you know, she was trying to get justice for a murder victim is what right. was what was happening. 
and yeah like you said that they were there was a constant implication that that might mm. that might have led to some violence whereas actually as she puts it you know they were trying to stay one step ahead of the campaign mm. in order to protect so that they could defend themselves and protect themselves from the campaign yeah. not because they were worried about public disorder or anything like that no entirely it, like, like like you said earlier it's it's the Met protecting the Met. It's yeah, you know, yeah. it's what it's it's the most important calling, you know. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And yeah, and but then it was, you know, the, the image the image of the funeral that was really mm. visual, I thought. You know, this I this um she talked about how it was the close family of Blair mm. Peach, somebody who'd been murdered, the close family who'd come to grieve mm. um for their you know, their their family member, but that there was also ten thousand people there mm. who'd um you know, and that shows how important an event this was to the community and mm. how you know how huge that must have been at the time mm. but also how chilling it was that there were all these undercover officers at that funeral you know wanting to know who was there writing down names of people who were there taking photographs taking photos yeah and those photographs still being on file now yeah it's you know it's yeah it's shocking and it's very moving and it's and mm. it's and it and it but it the way, yeah, like you say, the the sort of the real probing question, questioning wasn't about, you know, what was going on there and why was all of that happening. Mm. It was, you know, it was more about what she was up to and what the Socialist mm. Worker Party were doing and, you know, which mm. meetings she was going to and demos she was going to. And and that you know that the, you'd that there'd been uh, calls for pickets outside police stations. You know what? Mm. What do you mean by that? You know, it's like oh, there is a the danger of disorder then, isn't there? It's like, yeah, know, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I don't know, I guess the other thing, you know, I suppose where we're coming from that is different, I suppose, to where the inquiry is coming from, is this idea that um, that demonstrations, public show, public displays of strength of mm. feeling, you know, all of this stuff is crucial to yeah. a functioning society. And, right. you know, all of this stuff needs to happen yeah. rather than the attitude they or the, the kind of default they seem to be coming from of, yeah. of like, the police are trying to control all of this stuff mm. because this stuff is a sign of, you know, something being out of control or, mm. or something being, you know, something being yeah, uncontrolled. And that's yeah. the thing, whereas we're coming from a point of view of like, you know, police stations need to be picketed mm. sometimes and streets need to be occupied sometimes mm. and, you know, Still the National Front needs to be opposed. Absolutely. You know, this, that's the default that we're coming from. Yeah. And the, the inquiry clearly isn't coming. That it, it, it's not like it's not even looking at the um, the the what would happen otherwise. You know, if if if, if nobody had like cared about Blair Pleach being killed, yeah. you know, I mean, they, they've made such a fuss uh, recently about the miscarriage of justice of the people who got arrested for blockading the Star and Garter Hotel in Richmond for the yes. Lions Tour. Yeah. Um, but the miscarriage of justice of a police officer murdering a member of the public in the street. You know that 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 I mean like. And like all these, like with the National Front, it's like, well, the march was legal, and they were. Well, imagine if nobody had stood in the way of the National Front in the late seventies. Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, exactly. What kind of country yeah. do you want us to live in? Where would we be now? And I think it's yeah. something that lots of the, lots of people have asked repeatedly as part of this process. It's like, well, where would we be now if it wasn't for all this spying mm. as well? So where would we be now if nobody nobody done that? You know, we haven't been demonstrating on the streets against. Mm. Apartheid, and mm. you know there hadn't been the women's liberation movement. There hadn't been people opposing the National Front. Mm. But where would those campaigns? How much further on would those mm. campaigns be? You know, maybe we wouldn't have to still be protesting this shit yeah. if there hadn't been all that spying back from the seventies. 
and eighties because we can, we've seen already how much they were stifling these movements. You know, yeah, they were you know standing for positions of power within these groups, which was stopping other people who were genuine, mm. you know, from doing the work that needed to be done. They were kind of you know, yeah, they were they were stifling these movements. Yeah, undermining them. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. It's people like Celia Stubbs, right, who's like incredibly powerful, inspirational activist. You know, she spent her life fighting the injustice of her partner getting killed. Imagine yeah. she'd been able to go out there and actually do the yeah. things that got her involved in, in yeah. radical politics in the first place. The things you know. that she was doing back then. Right, yeah. you know, I mean, we, we all know people who've like ended up, you know, in court all their lives fighting things because, you know, they, 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 they wanted to actually, you know, take real action, but they just got caught up yeah. in, in what, in a real guard action against repression, you know. And I wonder if that's what's happening to us. Right, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm, I've, I've no doubt. I mean, this came up quite strongly in the um, investigatory powers tribunal mm. because they were looking at the human rights breaches in relation to freedom to protest, rights to protest. Mm. So freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, that kind of thing. You know, it's just, it is, if there weren't, you know, that spying that happened, it really did curtail our ability, you know, our freedom to do the, mm. to do these things. And I definitely think that's happened to me, you know. Mm it's definitely impacted my ability to go on demonstrations to put you know when you put all your energy into campaigning and then you discover you know you discover what was going on with those mm. campaigns and how those campaigns were being thwarted it is really hard to push through that and to carry on campaigning i'm so glad some people still are mm. and i'm so glad that movements are still continuing mm. you know that there are new protest movements bringing up all the time and in some ways, I kind of wish that those movements would be looking back at this history that's coming mm. up through the inquiry and what happened to protests back then and in order to learn the lessons. Yeah. But then in other ways, I'm glad that people are just carrying on with doing what they're doing and not letting this kind of feeling of futility and, and, and what could we have achieved without this, you know, not letting that get to them. It's such a balance, isn't it? You don't want people yeah. to be paranoid. You don't want people yeah. to be stopped from doing action, but you want them to be to be aware alert yes yeah. absolutely and to know that how 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 much how um how movements were pro were policed back then mm. is going to have a huge bearing on how movements mm. are policed now you know it's not as we've seen with the attitudes that we experienced that were that were first you know first came up in the units back then that there isn't a huge they're not worlds apart mm. these these the way the way the movements are being policed mm. today and the way they were being policed back then so it is it's important lessons but like you say how to how to learn those without being without letting them further stifle you is a yeah it's a fine balance and it's not a balance that i've managed to strike there, there was a period of time where any sort of political meeting i might rock up to everybody was paranoid as hell yeah, you know the yeah. new people are paranoid like new people aren't so paranoid it would appear at the moment which is it's, it's, it's good to see i was at the kill the bill march Right, the other yes, day, yeah, uh, and it was just you know, I mean, aside from the fact that you know, there's plenty, of, there's plenty I could disagree with, and plenty I think they're doing wrong, and it's not how I would do it, and all that guff. But you know, there was just a whole bunch of young people who were like kind of making their own narrative, you know, and yeah. it was, and that was really heartening to see, and you know, maybe feel a bit old, but you know, it was, <laughs> it's, yeah. But yeah. then I guess that's what we did. You know, right. we had our moment where, where, yeah. Older activists would stand on the sidelines saying, "Oh, you shouldn't do it like that. You yeah. shouldn't do it like this." <laughs> yeah. And you know, and and the, and that's going, oh, "Sorry, sorry, we'll do it the way we want to do it." Yeah. You know, I don't want to be that person on no. the sidelines saying, "You know, don't, don't, don't do it the yeah. way 
but I would like people not to make the mistakes that we made, mm. uh, or or at least, like you say, not to let that paranoia get to them. So to have that to have that mm. trust, but without the kind of naivety maybe that I that I had. Um, and I would like, whilst I don't want people to be to be paranoid, I want people to know that that at least is a possibility of something mm. that could happen. Mm. Yeah. And just the length the state will go to with this is much further than you think it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we were, we were so it's all so much more of a, of a threat. To find out more about this topic, please visit spycops.info, where you can find all the old episodes, subscribe to our newsletter, join our Facebook group, and a lot more besides. We're grateful to the Campaign Opposing Police Surveillance for their support, which has allowed us to buy some microphones. We want to improve more. If you'd like to support the podcast, please get in touch.